0: to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I first want to say thank you to everyone who has uh, made the worship service possible this morning and uh, kept me from speaking the entire time. Um, I've had a very severe cold all week, and this is the first day I have been able to be heard. Um, It's been uh, pretty bad, and I'm hoping to get through two services, but thank you for leading the service for me. I wonder if you had the option, the opportunity, which of these would you prefer? Someone who tells you how wonderful you are. I think we might prefer that. Or someone who is honest with you and gives you an assessment of where you are and shows you how you can improve and grow. Of those two options, which would you choose? You may be honest enough to say it depends on the day, right? (laughs) Some days you just want encouragement. But it's probably true, in your more sober moments, you would say, I'd prefer the second. I want to assume the person has my best interest in mind. I want to assume the person thinks I'm worthy of the pursuit. But What I really want to know is an honest assessment of where I am so I know how to pursue the goal. That, of course, would be true of any athlete. You wouldn't want a coach that just gave you accolades. You'd want encouragement. But you'd want a coach that said to you, here's where you need to improve. I know what you can be. Here's the goal. Now let's pursue it passionately. And sometimes the pursuit of that goal may be very difficult indeed. It seems to me that in this passage, there are three characteristics of Paul's pursuit of the goal that he describes first he begins with an honest personal assessment his words are this these I have not reached the goal of perfection I've not attained all this I haven't made it there were some people in Paul's day and unfortunately Some people in our day who thought and who now think that the goal of perfection in this life is achievable. That at some level, even spiritual perfection is achievable. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to see a A hint of that, you take a look at 1 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. Or you understand the entire book of 1 Corinthians as a group of people who had encountered this spiritual dynamic of the presence of Jesus Christ and the Spirit in their midst. And they had gotten to the place that they felt they had elevated themselves to such a level that their spirituality somehow even eclipsed their material reality. Such that many of the rules that one would consider to be basic rules of living the Christian life, they would say, well, we can disregard that because we live in the spirit and the body doesn't matter at all. We live at such a high level, there's a there's a new ethic for us. Some people still think that it's possible to achieve such a high level of a spiritual goal, that your ethics are perfect. Your conformity to God's standard is without fault. Sometimes it's known as Christian perfectionism. I think Paul is saying quite the opposite here. Remember what he said just before he penned these words. He said, whatever were my gains, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them... Garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and participation in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. With that as a context for the words that he just gave us, we might want to consider his words concerning pursuing a goal with this in mind. Not that those things, he is saying, not that those things which I have counted as garbage don't on some day have an appeal. Not as though those things which I previously did and achieved I think are worthless compared to Christ. Not as though there are not days where those things become large in my consciousness such that my accomplishments themselves begin to eclipse my personal passion for Jesus Christ. Not, I haven't attained it. I tell you, I think they're garbage, but I haven't gotten to the place that they don't hamper me in my spiritual walk because sometimes they do. Or put it another way, not that I, just because I wish to, not that I fully know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I'm on a pursuit to fully know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I'm not there. I haven't achieved it. That's why I'm so passionate about the goal because even the things that I say I have counted as loss, those things can become personal pride to me even though I know better. Even though I say I am passionate about Jesus Christ and the resurrection, I know that my passion concerning Jesus Christ and the resurrection is not complete or full. I am not perfect. In order to make any progress in the spiritual life or in our physical life, a serious evaluation of where we are is a key to our spiritual growth. In Paul's serious evaluation of where he is, is that he's far short of the goal. His serious evaluation of where he is is that he has not achieved it. His serious evaluation of where he is is that he will not achieve it in this life. It's about the pursuit, the singular focus, the passionate pursuit. The second thing we notice about Paul's pursuit of the goal. First, he begins with an honest assessment. And second, he's rigorous in his commitment. I take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Do you notice the dynamic synergy at work here? Christ took hold of me so that I might pursue the goal that Christ is pursuing for me. Christ did it for me. He placed me on this track it is all about Him, and even the desire that I have to pursue the goal, a desire that comes from Christ. He placed it within me. I take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. For those of you who uh, tire of athletic <clears throat> analogies, you'll have to pardon me, because there will be several. And one of the reasons is because the language of this text was frequently used in Paul's day as it related to athletic endeavors and even military conquest. If, in fact, you were a particular kind of athlete and the coach said to you, Son, I've got a goal for you. And I'll tell you the reason I have the goal for you. Here's the reason. Number one, because I know you can be better than you are. And number two, because you were made for this. You didn't know it before we had this conversation. And as a matter of fact, sometimes you're still filled with self-doubt. Or you're just lazy. But I want to tell you, son... You've got the potential to pursue a goal and to achieve a remarkable end and that's why I'm going to focus on you and pursue you and to ask you to pursue the goal relentlessly because you're designed to do this. In effect Paul seems to be saying when Christ took hold of me he was saying Paul this is your destiny. You are designed for this. And I'm going to show you the goal. And I'm going to infuse you with the resurrection power to pursue that goal. You can be that person. The image, as I mentioned, uh, refers frequently to military campaigns and athletic endeavors. It even has the intensity of force in the Greek language. And it requires, as Paul said in another place, strict, strict training. Paul uses an athletic metaphor to make his point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, he says this Do you not know that in a race all the, run, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air no I even strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others I myself will not be disqualified for the prize Paul is serious in his commitment And he uses that kind of language to describe his serious commitment. He also says this, "...in order for me to have this kind of serious commitment, I have to forget what is behind. Not the kind of forgetfulness that pretends like things did not exist in the past. But the kind of forgetfulness that says the things that are in the past will not hamper me in my pursuit of the future." What things in the past? One thing in the past could be failures. Our lives are littered with failure. The past includes all kinds of false starts and attempts that never made what we wanted them to make. But, my friends, you know this as well as Paul does. Our past includes accomplishments. Remember what Paul said about the accomplishments in his life? All of it's behind me, he said. I don't rest on my laurels. I don't focus on the sins of my past. I singularly pursue the goal that's ahead of me. Whatever is behind me, I don't forget. I just place it where it ought to be so that I can pursue the goal. We cannot change the past, but we can make a decision about how the past will affect our future. Our failures are not final, and our triumphs are not either. I will not stay where I am, Paul says. I will move forward. I will not be satisfied with the past, even though the past may have been wonderful. I had no idea that my friend Tim O'Connor was going to make mention of his past and how at one time he had a youthful passion for following Christ. His description, you remember, was, is the passion still alive? By that, I don't think he meant Is it just as good as it was before? But remember what Christ has done for you and continue to pursue Him with the original passion even beyond where you once were. That's what Paul's call is to us. William Faulkner made an interesting comment one time. He said that there's a difference between a monument and a footprint. He said, a monument says, at least I've come this far. While a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. Oh, you could dissect it and criticize it, but you get the point. You could put a stake in the ground and say, look what I did. Or you could look behind you and say, Thus far has the Lord led me, and to the future I go. That seems to be the attitude of Paul. He uses the image of a runner straining ahead, straining forward, leading into the race. And as any runner knows, in order to do well, you definitely look forward. And you lean into the race. Every runner will tell you, especially as you're in a race with others, like on a track, you don't glance behind you. It's devastating. In 1954, there were two amazing athletes, both of whom were a part of the British empire at the time. And they were the only two men who had broken the four-minute mile. That's not uncommon today. There was a time where even scientists or kinesiologists would have suggested that the four-minute mile, breaking it was impossible, humanly speaking. I remember being at a track event at IU and watching not one, not two, but three people break a four-minute mile. The four-minute mile is really kind of a thing of the past. Still remarkable, but a thing of the past. The two people who were known for breaking the four-minute mile were Roger Bannister and John Landy. And in 1954, they met at the Empire Games. Roger Bannister... had a tactic for most every race, which was to reserve his energy on the mile race and then to kick hard at the end. John Landy had an entirely different strategy, and that was to come out of the box and blow so far ahead of the other runners that he left them in the dust, discouraged by his speed and he just went all out. The story is that they really labored, both of them and their coaches, over which strategy to use. And finally they settled on the strategy that they were known for and approached the race in that way. And if you look at the old black and white footage of the race, you'll see that strategy playing out. Robert Landy is like a rocket, out of the starting gate, and he's way out ahead of everybody. Roger Bannister is about four or five people back, gaining continuously. Landy is far out ahead of all the other runners, and then Roger Bannister starts his kick. It's about the last lap, and he starts to get closer, and closer, and closer. And you can see in this old black and white footage, John Landy running with all his might and then going like this. You know who won the race? The one that didn't look back. Roger Bannister passed him what seemed to be with ease until he collapsed at the end of the finish line, and you noticed it wasn't ease and all. Paul basically is saying, you're a runner. Pursue the goal. Don't look back. It's always in front of you. Give it your all. There's a third thing concerning Paul's orientation towards his goal. It was first an honest assessment of where he was. Second, it was a rigorous commitment to what it took to pursue the goal. And third, I see in this passage that he seems to be absolutely overwhelmed by the goal. Now, by that I don't mean so overwhelmed that he was incapacitated. I mean another kind of overwhelming He was overwhelmed by the goal. The goal overwhelmed him. It overwhelmed his entire reality. It encompassed him. It became everything about him. The goal itself overwhelmed him. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ That sounds like the only thing he's looking for is heaven, but we know different from the Apostle Paul's other writings and even this one. The goal itself wasn't just the heavenly reward, although it was. The goal itself was the pursuit. The goal itself was the relationship with Jesus Christ. The goal was to experience Christ's suffering and the power of His resurrection. The goal was sanctification in this life. Ongoing every single day. Of course, like the runners, he hoped to achieve the goal and to ascend that podium in the final day. Paul was intense about his goal and overwhelmed by it. I want to make an important distinction before I move to very short application. Here's the important distinction. Paul is not working for his salvation as in earning it. We can't hear that here. Paul is working out his salvation. That is, he's living it. Remember these verses from chapter 2. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, I'm sorry, that's chapter 1. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Almost sounds like it's up to Paul. But the next phrase helps us understand it. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Paul is not working for his salvation in order to earn it. He's working out his salvation. He's living it. Here are the very short points of application. The first is this. (coughs) Ask yourself this question and answer it in the quiet of your own heart. Is there anything, is there anything that is more important than your eternal destiny? That's the first question. The second question if that's true, that there is nothing more important? Are you pursuing spiritual growth with the same intensity that you are pursuing other things? Money, career, relationships, physical health, Fill in the gap? Are you pursuing spiritual growth with the same intensity? And then the final question is really pretty simple. Based on those answers that you just gave yourself, what are you going to change? What are you going to change? I think Paul would affirm that admonition. We all need to change. If we're serious about the goal, we need to make some adjustments. If we've never even taken the first step towards the goal, please recognize with me That there is nothing more important than your eternal destiny. And allow today to be the day that you begin to pursue that goal in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Well, the toughness of your word. It's not mealy mouth. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not just an encouragement that we're really good people. And we just need to be a little better. It's a call to a new way of life. It's a call to an honest assessment. that we need a Savior. And that we need to pursue the goal of the one who has given us salvation. Lord, for that one or more who's here this morning who's not surrendered their life to you, we pray that today they will. And that they will enter into the pursuit of knowing you. And we pray, Lord, for those of us who have been in that pursuit for many years you will revitalize our hearts by faith. You'll renew our passion for our first love. That you will encourage us and challenge us to make changes in our life that demonstrate our commitment to the most important thing. We know that when we ask, you hear and you answer. So give us the hearts to follow, Lord. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.